Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. In this episode, we're sharing with you a presentation held at the 2020 Consumer Voice Virtual Conference on finding real solutions for behavioral health needs in persons with dementia. This podcast will explore strategies, effective treatments, and support for residents and families who often need help understanding their rights and how to get good care. The speakers are Kelly Bagby of AARP Foundation and Sue Renz, a Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. To view the slides mentioned in this presentation, visit theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our workshop today. We are going to be talking about finding real solutions for behavioral health needs in persons with dementia. We're really excited to be offering this program to you. We're thrilled to have two wonderful speakers today. We have Sue Renz, who is the Practice Associate Professor and Director, Doctor of Nursing Practice Program and the Director of the Primary Care Program at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, and Kelly Bagby, who is Vice President for Litigation for Health, Hunger, Housing and Human Services at AARP Foundation. You can get their full bios in the session description. Just click on that and you can see them. Thank you, Lori. So it's my great pleasure to be doing this presentation with Sue Renz. Sue and I have known and worked together for many years. Um, and so she was, when Lori asked me to think of somebody who would be a great clinician to help explain this problem and alternatives to using drugs with people with dementia, Sue was the front, the first person I thought of. So I'm going to start out by sort of walking through why this is such a problem and why we are um, trying to talk about how to recognize people, first of all, who are being given drugs um, inappropriately uh, when, when treatment is really what they need. So if you could turn this next slide. So antipsychotic drugs also sometimes uh, use the psychotropic drugs are um, drugs that affect mental activity. And for some people, they're entirely appropriate and life-saving. You people who have mental illness, um, you know, have can really have their life changed and stabilized by using these drugs. But if you do not have what's known as an access one diagnosis, a mental health diagnosis, they and you're being given these drugs, giving these drugs to people with dementia, you can really just destroy their their mental ability, their 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 interactions on a day to day basis. You can change their minds and in sometimes in a way that cannot be changed back. Um, there that. So one of the things I want to talk about, and Sue's going to get into more of this because, you know, she's a doctor, um, that the, there are side effects with psychotropic drugs, sometimes for everybody, but definitely for people with dementia. And they can have, they can really lower the quality of life. They can make people um, really less likely to eat. They can make people less likely to remember to drink. So that would cause compl complications with their nutrition, with their hydration. They can cause sedation and dizziness, which can cause people to fall. That, that can lead to people breaking bones. You can develop symptoms that are known as Parkinsonian symptoms, where you become kind of trembly and you become, your body can move involuntarily. Um, and that's a, Definitely something to watch for when you're, especially for the ombudsman and family members, if you're seeing those kind of symptoms, you would need to take somebody to the doctor right away and, and try to evaluate whether there's um, a way, and Sue will talk more about this, a way to sort of address this problem and taper these drugs back out again. Um, but there's also a, an ex these drugs can accelerate someone's actual decline due to the dementia you know, the dementia can speed up, it seems like. And it, it that is really where 
um, you get into this cycle because somebody will start to decline. They go, oh, let's try, let's try a different kind of drug or a combination of another drug. So you're adding drugs on all the time rather than evaluating. And that can really make the dementia um, problems much more, much more difficult to handle. Could we go to the next slide? So antipsychotic drugs or psychotropic drugs are different categories of drugs, but I'm using them interchangeably here, probably completely inappropriately, and Sue will tell me why I shouldn't do that, but, but they they are really, you know, different classes of drugs. But there are there are 10 different atypical antipsychotic drugs for, that are used to treat schizophrenia and or bipolar disorders. And so those are drugs that are approved for that purpose. Drugs are these drugs are not approved to be used for people with dementia. In fact, they can you go to the next slide, Lori? In fact, these drugs have what's known as a black box warning. And black box warning is the um, the highest degree of warning that the FDA will put on a drug. And it literally put they put a black box around the warning. It's like literally a written black box. But most of the people who are dispensing drugs in a nursing facility don't see the labels. That that the drugs are distributed by the pharmacist and it come out on a tray, as you've probably all seen, and they're you know ready to be just given to the person, given to the people in, on the floor. But they're not, so the, the this packet insert is not actually seen by most of the people who are administering the drugs. So, and I've, I've taken depositions of doctors who didn't even realize that these drugs have a black box warning, which is kind of terrifying if you're prescribing them. Um, can we go to the next slide? So this is a list from the FDA of the drugs with their, um, their name brand as well as their generic brand. And I believe that Lori's office, Lori's folks have a like an insert that you, they can distribute that people can just carry with them in their bag or in their briefcase or on their notebook to just know that these are the drugs you want to be watchful of. You know, I there's some of them like there are uh, that are not listed here that are also have dangerous impact but so we had a case recently where geodon the fourth third one fourth one down here was given and um the gentleman who had was given the geodon when his family said you must take him off they cut it cold turkey and he that was when he started shifting and shifting and he was shifting so much and he was rubbing his feet on the on the ground from his wheelchair, that he literally wore the skin right off of his feet because that's how much he was, he was so agitated with the, the uh, abrupt stopping of the geodon. So these things need to be addressed in a way, you don't wanna just say, take them off right now. They have to be addressed in a way that um, is carefully and, and, and watchfully done by, uh, with physician supervision. Go to the next slide. So, for example, here is the warning label for Geodon. Geodon says elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis um, or uh, psychosis treated with an antipsychotic drug are at an increased risk of death. So that's pretty serious, <laughs> increased risk of death. And these are, it's actually about a, a five-fold risk of death. So it's, a, it's quite an ex extensive um, risk of death. And the, when you look... I've, I've talked to so many experts over the years about this, but one of the experts that we worked with was pointing out to me that the study, I think it, it's maybe the respiratory study, when they look at the, the folks that they were evaluating, they were actually like people who are maybe 60 to 65. So imagine if you've got a person with dementia who is 85 and they're, they are having even more complications from these drugs because they're, they're dealing with other consequences of, of you know health problems as they got older. The Seroquel warning is very similar and indicates that this is just simply not approved for elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis. So the so that's something interesting to see. I, I've had cases where the diagnosis overnight went from dementia to dementia-related psychosis. And then suddenly the drug started. It was a, it was actually a Seroquel, um, pers a person given Seroquel. So you do have to watch for diagnosis 
changes because that sometimes you see that as a precursor to when the drugs are started because that should not happen. You shouldn't, you know, somebody doesn't just suddenly become, well, they certainly aren't going to become schizophrenic, schizophrenic for the first time late, you know, in their 80s. But they, the word psychosis, if it's never been used for uh, to describe a resident, um, you shouldn't just have a, all of a sudden emerged psychosis diagnosis. That's that should send off alarm bells, and you should ask people where did that come from? What did you what what manifestations of psychosis did you see? And families should ask those questions as well as as well as staff in nursing facilities, but certainly ombudsman. Next slide. So a lot of people I talk to about this uh, sort of doubt this because they say, why would this happen? Why would doctors do this? Why would why would nurse nursing facilities um, be giving these drugs if they're they have a black box warning? It just seems inconceivable. It seems so dangerous and irresponsible. But the reason is, in my estimation, other other, other people might have other reasons, but in my estimation, it's very, very effective off-label promotion of these drugs to these populations. And the um, I actually met Sue Renz when she and I, I worked for the federal government and she was one of our uh, nurse investigators. And when you go, when you deal with some of these companies that are, that are really invested in profit and healthcare and, uh, but, but really profit, they're, the way that you make the most profit is you push, you push things into situate, into vulnerable people's lives. And so, for example, and I'm going to talk to you about some of these off-label cases that kind of led to this wide proliferation of drugs in these nursing facilities. These these drugs are um, given to, and again, Sue is going to talk more about this, but they're given to control what is seen as unwanted or challenging behaviors. And, and it's challenging. The reason they're challenging is because it requires more staff. Because if, if somebody's acting out, um, it, or seemingly acting out from the perspective of a nursing facility, they're, they're maybe running, trying to take care of so many different people. The staff are, um, you know, they've got somebody over here who needs to be taken to the cafeteria. There's somebody over here that needs to have meds administered. Somebody over here needs wound care. Somebody over here. And then somebody's coming, wandering over and wanting to talk incessantly to the nurse and wants attention and wants to get, you know, basically divert the, the nurse or the CNA from what it is they were doing. That, um, from the staff's perspective, is something that they're going, well, this, she's, she's just being way too demanding. I need to, you know, I need something. She's too agitated. She's anxious. She's this, she's that. So maybe she's sick. Maybe she's got an underlying health condition and she's seeking attention because she doesn't know how to tell you what it is that's actually wrong, that she feels nauseous or she feels like her stomach really hurts or she's, you know, she's really dizzy because of something else that's happened. But so unfortunately, it might be that the staff are trying to solve a problem that they don't know what the problem is, and the drug is a is an antidote to the problem, and that um, can lead to terrible consequences for for real people. Um, the the a case that we had um, not not that long ago, we had problems where uh, the this gentleman was having an argument with another resident and they they both they had a tension between them but it's no not clear what the tension was really from and um it turned out that our client was uh had a really bad urinary tract infection and it was making him really grumpy and so but nobody bothered to try to figure out were his symptoms actually something medical or was it just that he was being grumpy and difficult and he was really sick and so they when they finally got him to the hospital and realized he had a urinary tract infection that kind of changed things or should have changed things and they should have um they should have you know looked carefully at what they had been doing but by then he was already on like three different antipsychotic drugs um and that's you know then they and they added more drugs when he went to the hospital 
for the UTI. So that these are these things tend to kind of become more complicated um, as people try to seemingly solve a problem, but they actually are worsening a problem. And go to the next slide. All right, and so if this is these are some of the how the story has unfolded. There's a case in 2016 of against the federal government against Omnicare. And this was not the first case against Omnicare. There have been multiple cases against Omnicare. But Omnicare is a, a very, very popular um, nursing facility pharmacy company. And they were, they were accepting kickbacks from Abbott Labs. Now, Abbott Labs is the maker of, of many different drugs. But I think this one was related to um, Depakote. And so and so Depakote, while it is not a antipsychotic drug, it's a drug, it's a drug commonly used for seizures. It it is used the same way as um, some of these other antipsychotic drugs are used. And it was causing people with dementia to become very, very ill and and die. Many people died. So the government brings this case, they settle it for 2.8 million. Are $28 million to resolve these kickbacks. Now, kick, this is, if you don't know what a kickback is, it's, you know, we kind of think of it in commonsensical terms. But kickback is when uh, Abbott is giving something of value to Omnicare. And, and as in return, Omnicare is promoting, heavily promoting the use of Depakote in nursing, the nursing facilities they work at. So if a doctor comes forward and says, well, this person has this problem, and then Omnicare would be like, hey, you know what? You should try Depakote. I'm a pharmacist. You should try Depakote. And that's the way that they were proliferating the use of Depakote in many of these nursing facilities. Next slide, please. So then on the other side, the kickback is always two sides, right? So the kickback on Omnicare, they got 28 million. Abbott had to pay one and a half billion dollars for promoting Depakote to be used with um, people with dementia. They were actively advocating that Depakote be used in nursing facilities with people who have um, dementia. And it, it just, it's kind of stunning to me that they got away with it for as long as they did. But even $1.5 billion is the cost of doing business for a company like Abbott. They, you, can't, you just have to think, assume how much they actually made doing this. But so it just, it is a the process it's when you think of it and maybe this is me being a jaded former government lawyer but when you think about how the how much energy they spent doing the promotion they knew very well that they would be successful getting the getting depakote to be used in a very prolific way and they were right and they did next slide please so here's another one, Johnson & Johnson. They actually took a guilty plea for promoting risperidol to treat dementia-related behaviors while downplaying the deadly risks of, ris of risperidol with people who have dementia. And theirs was $2.2 billion. I mean, really, that's that you'd think would in induce meaningful change. And yet it's, again, it's the cost of doing business. And they must have made a fortune doing this. Eli Lilly also took a criminal plea and paid $1.45 billion to resolve cases alleging off-label promotion of Zyprexa, another very commonly used drug. And it's, uh, and it's you know, in we had a case um, that we settled a couple of years ago, and this lovely, lovely woman who is a teacher um, had raised her children, had loads of grandchildren, loved to work, loved to love trivia, was super smart, totally on her game. Again, she got a UTI in this facility. And rather than ever evaluating what her medical issues were, um, they started her on Zyprexa. And within a week and a half, she had deteriorated to the point that her family didn't recognize her, a week and a half. And so they, you know, this is, these are, these things work, can work depending on your body chemistry. These things can work very, very quickly to bring your clinical abilities down. Um, next slide. 
So we're going to talk more about non-pharmacological interventions. And um, again, first thing that should always be done is assess the scope and severity of the behavior. Try to figure out, is this something environmental? Is it is it too noisy here? Is there just confusion? Is the person ill? Um, are they, you know, do they have um, the, the, our client who had the UTI that got the Zyprexa, she had just come out of the hospital with an impaction. So you'd think that somebody would wonder, maybe she's still ill, <laughs> but they didn't. They didn't. They just went right for the drugs. And drugs should be only used, only used when non-pharmacological attempts have been tried and failed. Like, but they have to be tried. And I think sometimes in nursing facilities, drugs are the first things that are tried instead of the last things that are tried. And obviously there are exceptions um, in under most state laws about if people pose a threat to themselves or others, but there are procedures that need to be followed if that is the case. And if you can't just glean that somebody's a, a danger, there should be, there should be um, really there should be procedures and followed to document that you've tried to evaluate this, that they actually are a threat and you, you know, these are not psychiatric hospitals. Nursing homes are not psychiatric hospitals. Uh, next slide, please. So I wanna just talk for a minute about um, who decides about these drugs. There should always be informed consent and informed consent has to be given in the context of what you're, pro what you're proposing. Informed consent, um, if, you're, if I'm gonna give Sue a drug that might kill her, then the informed consent conversation is, I understand that this might kill you, but I, I, the risks are, are great, but this is the benefits. You have to literally lay out what the possible consequences are. You cannot just say, I wanna give you this because it, it'll help you to stop yelling. Next slide, please. And finally, I'm just gonna finish up with a case we brought many years ago. Next slide. Levine versus Convalescent Hospital in California. We brought, this is a class action we brought in California um, with, with two wonderful lawyers out there. Um, and we, Ms. Levine basically had the whole, she just was perfectly normal behavior. She was in the nursing home for rehab. They gave her these drugs. They gave apparently everybody in the nursing facility these drugs. And she, um, like within a week, she was unrecognizable. Next slide. Her, the daughter took her out of the nursing facility and um, took her to the hospital. And within a week, she was dead. And so she came to us and we filed the lawsuit. And we, you know, when we resolved the case, there's a 2014 bulletin article about this. And we, when this ran in the bulletin, we got hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of phone calls of people saying, this is what happened to my mom. And so this is why we've been fighting these cases as hard as we have ever since. And I'm going to turn it over to to uh, the real expert here. <laughs> push, can you just push the slides down to um, Suze? Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, let's go to the next. I really like the title of this. Uh, uh, session um, because it's really near and dear to my heart too. And I just, um, in addition to being an academic, uh, I am a geriatric nurse practitioner and have been in practice for over 32 years now uh, with the focus of my practice being on long-term care, you know, caring for older adults in um, adult daycares, nursing homes, assisted livings. And so I'm very familiar with this problem that we're talking about today. And when I teach my nurse practitioner students, one of the uh, things that I emphasize in talking about kind of the care environment is really being mindful about how, you know, how they're prescribing psychotropic meds. And, and Kelly, you were right, you know, psychotropics is kind of the broad term for medications that we prescribe for, you know, behavioral mood issues you know, antipsychotics being kind of a subclass of that. But it, it's important, um, whether you're a clinician or a layperson, to understand that um, 
clinicians need to take prescribing very seriously and that when we prescribe medications, it's based on assessment and it's based on the result of an assessment, some type of finding that really warrants the use of medication. Um, I, I think, you know, this slide really, um, these are statistics that are from uh, 2017, actually. When you look at the percentage of people who have dementia in various care settings, this number, these statistics really haven't changed significantly over the years. But when I began practice in the 80s, it wouldn't be unusual to see more than 50% um, of a resident population within a nursing home medicated somehow with some type of psychotropic and particularly antipsychotics. And just to give you some context, back in the 80s, um, even you know, when OBRA came into play in 1987, nursing homes weren't really tightly regulated and clinicians were never questioned about prescribing practices. So if you had a resident that had a mood issue, somebody who was talking too much, somebody who was wandering, uh, restless, anxious, calling out, resisting care, and I'll talk more about this in a minute, um, oftentimes the result of uh, the assessment of that behavior was that these are symptoms that needed to be medicated call is made to a clinician and the you know the most popular drug probably in the late 80s early 90s was Haldol and no one would have questioned whether or not we put someone on an antipsychotic to try to extinguish those behaviors that I just outlined and this is really the crux of what we're talking about today because we no longer are allowed to do that thank goodness and that nursing homes are more tightly scrutinized and regulated to make sure that there is hopefully an assessment process in place to figure out, you know, what is the mood? What is the symptom that the resident is exhibiting? And is medication really necessary? Now, I should say that while we have made some progress, uh, as Kelly pointed out, there's still a problem in that um, the last person to be questioned about um, the prescribing of a medication is a clinician. Uh, we are the least challenged uh, in terms of clinical decision-making, and yet uh, we should be held accountable for when we're asked to prescribe a medication uh, to make sure that there is an indication for it, and more importantly, that there's a process for follow-up uh, and uh, you know, reassessment of the need for that medication. So anyway, this first slide really is just to show you that, you know, dementia and problems with cognition are pretty prevalent in the long-term care setting with about 50% of nursing home residents. Next slide, please. And what I want to outline too is that what we're talking about today is we're medicating people for what we call behaviors or psychological symptoms that are associated with dementia. So, um, you know, psychosis is one of them, but there are also other symptoms that people present with that are often medicated. What I want the, the audience to understand is that when we're talking about that, we're talking about, um, you know, that people with dementia, because they have frontal lobe damage um, and, you know, in various stages, have disturbed perceptions, the disturbed perceptions of their environment, what it looks like what people are saying to them, what a caregiver is trying to do. And so there's a, there's a disturbance in the thought process and thought content and sometimes mood and behavior. It is, you know, often if you see someone with dementia where they don't have any mood issues, that's, you're pretty lucky because a large proportion of nursing home residents in particular do have some mood issues associated with it. And someone in the question and answer um, box there did point out, and I've seen this too, that we've seen a rise in some of these mood uh, or behavior issues with the pandemic because of nursing home residents being socially isolated uh, in their rooms because of the need for social distancing and also with the decrease in activity related to that social isolation. Um, so as I said, you know, this statistic's pretty high, but 90% of patients with dementia 
you know, sometimes will have one type of mood disturbance. It does impact the caregiver burden, whether it's um, spouses or children caring for older adults in the home or in a care environment. And um, it these behaviors that people exhibit, and even that Kelly pointed out, uh, cause, you know, distress, not only to the caregiver, but it actually causes distress to the individual themselves. And you can see why, um, because of that, and because of the high incidence, that that led, has led to an over-prescribing of medications in the absence of really a true clinical syndrome that needs to be medicated. Um, we know that, um, you know, the use of psychotropic meds and the overuse or the over-prescribing has led to, um, you know, admission to long-term care institutions because of, you know, that example that you pointed out, Kelly, at the, the end of your presentation where it can create um, problems with the individual where their their cognition is impaired, they've lost function, they can't eat, they've become incontinent, all from the medications requiring long-term care admission. Next slide, please. So think about this, you know, when you think about some of the behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, these are um, think about um, how does memory impairment lead to a behavioral issue? Well, here's an example. A, a resident or a patient is not able to dress himself because they can't remember, you know, where his clothes are kept, right? Because the association with a closet or a dresser is lost. And so that person walks around naked, which um, to most of us who understand dementia is understandable because of the loss of brain function. But to other people, they might see that behavior, someone walking around naked as a problem that they want to extinguish. And so it might lead to, you know, the prescription of an antipsychotic with the hope of trying to ameliorate that symptom when in fact we know that it doesn't do that. Next slide. Again, impaired recognition. So that's a term, a technical term called agnosia, where a person doesn't recognize objects that are familiar to them when they don't have memory impairment. So an example is someone can't maneuver um, to use the bathroom. They can't maneuver to pull their pants down because they don't recognize that a toilet is a receptacle for urination, something that we we automatically do in our everyday lives. But people with dementia don't look at a toilet and all the time and think that that is what it's used for. And so they urinate on the floor. That's a problem behavior and often seen in nursing homes where people urinate in various places. Again, that could trigger the use of an, a medication to try to extinguish that behavior when in fact a medication isn't going to do anything uh, related to that particular symptom. Next slide. And the last is um, the performance of motor tests, which we call uh, apraxia when there's an impairment there. So a person is continent, but they can't unzip or unbutton to pull down their pants and so they wet their clothing, they're incontinent leads to staff frustration. Um, maybe they, instead of helping the resident with this, they um, automatically put a brief or a diaper on them, which leads to maybe a behavior issue because the, the resident doesn't want to, to wear a brief. Again, down the road could lead to the overuse of medication. Next slide. So these are some of the behaviors that I described, a few of them earlier that I want you to, to think about. You hear often and many times when families are called about their loved one having a behavior, the behaviors that are described can encompass, you know, physical and verbal, such as, you know, they're restless, they're wandering and pacing, they're hitting, scratching and biting, resisting care, they're throwing things, they're socially inappropriate, they're making sexual advances on other residents. They're screaming or cursing, or they're having a temper outburst. Or a psychological symptom 
that is different than the, the person's baseline, where they have now new symptoms of depression or anxiety, they're apathetic to their mood, you know, they're, they're just not as initiated or engaged. They have sleep disturbances, and then often, um, sometimes people with dementia, often in later stages, show signs of psychosis, where they're hallucinating, they're seeing things that are not there, or they're delusional. These are all behaviors that, again, have led to the overprescribing of psychotropic meds that really require, most important point of today, is really require an assessment about what is actually going on. Next slide. And so the most important thing that I teach my students and when I'm mentoring in the clinical setting is that all behaviors have a root cause. So all behaviors have meaning. Many of you have probably heard that before. I, I would encourage, you know, family members to ask when they're getting that phone call about, you know, my mom is restless, your mom is restless, or they're wandering and pacing, is to ask the question of why. What's different? Is there something going on? And so it is so important to really ask for the staff in any facility and the clinicians to, un to try to identify what's going on what's the underlying cause of the agitation or aggression and i really to be honest with you i don't like the word agitated or agitation uh, my colleague that i worked with uh, with kelly many years ago we used to always say that the person's upset something is uh, instead of saying agitated which i think is is pretty pejorative it's it's uh it's really a derogatory term uh it's more that they're upset something something is triggering a behavior that we really need to look for the root cause. So some of the reasons that people have changes in behavior, they're experiencing a delirium. It might be a medication side effect. It could be that they have a sensory deficit. They can't hear. Their vision is impaired, um, something like that. They might not be able to express themselves because they have advanced cognition, deficit, a cognitive deficit or language deficit. They can't put the words to what they want to say, what they want to ask for. They have unresolved pain. They're not sleeping well. And many of us can attest to the fact that if you don't have a good night's sleep, what that actually does to your overall sense of well-being and your mood. Some people are experiencing depression or anxiety or apathy and psychosis. They have an unmet need. They're hungry, they're tired, they need to go to the bathroom, they need to get up and move, so they have an unmet need, and there might be an environmental trigger, like they don't like the person at their table, it's cold in the environment, um, too much noise, the lights are on, staff are screaming at them, there could be so many issues, but key here is really to identify what is going on that is creating this response, this, this mood change. Next slide. And so the first thing really, in addition to really looking for the root cause, is if, if there is going to be some type of intervention, and it really should be, it's really looking first towards non-pharmacological management. The studies have shown that non-pharm, you know, not using meds um, has been shown to really reduce agitation and anxiety in people with dementia, and that those techniques that are used to help kind of reduce, you know, take the person down, you know, get their anxiety down needs to be individualized. What's actually going on with that person that we really need to address? Um, and non-pharmacological interventions really incorporate, you know, three kind of buckets. One is behavioral interventions. The other is caregiver education and training. And here, you know, I'm really talking about education and training of nursing home staff or assisted living staff where they really understand this is how you address or deal with somebody when they're having a mood issue when, and they have advanced dementia. This is how you approach them. This is how you should talk to them. Sometimes just using touch or not no touch at all. Um, and then incorporating other sensory techniques that can help actually reduce agitation or upsetness and anxiety without the use of medications. Next slide. 
So the other thing is to think about what is triggering the behavior in that individual and to avoid those triggers. So people respond better when they have a consistent routine and environment, when there's predictability to it, um, and when it's individualized. So if I am ever in a nursing home, uh, I get up at five o'clock in the morning and uh, I hope that that routine would be uh, honored if I'm ever uh, a resident in a long-term care setting or someone who's worked night shift all their life. Like really that the, the environment is really tailored towards that individual's needs. And to avoid, you know, sudden changes in routine that can really precipitate increased confusion and then subsequently the agitation. Um, you know, somebody's used to a shower at a certain time of day, or if it's a trigger for someone to have, you know, lukewarm water versus hot water, all those kinds of things that really would upset us as individuals, um, really making sure that we avoid those triggers in people with cognitive loss. Determine and anticipate unmet needs. So if someone has pain, to make sure that they're on a, a routine, that their pain is addressed and that they're on a routine regimen to address um, you know, chronic pain. Are they hungry or thirsty? Um, and then also to really incorporate you know, appropriate language um, that can actually facilitate communication. Sometimes cognitive deficits can't respond to conversation like we're having today. It might be simple cues like, come with me. Are you hot? Are you hungry? Or just, you know, nonverbal behavior cues for someone so that it helps facilitate communication. And the last bullet's really important. I'm sure all of you have heard about person-centered care. To me, what that means is really looking at the individual. There's not one plan that works for everyone who has some behavioral symptom related to dementia. It really is based on that individual. And it is important to incorporate what the family knows about that resident that can actually help um, them if they're exhibiting behavior. Some things that uh, I have found very valuable information from spouses and children that said, hey, when dad was upset when he was younger, this is what we did. It's so important to incorporate um, what what we know has worked in the past and what the family can bring to the table. Next slide. I talked about a little bit about, you know, caregiver education, uh, communication skills training is so important. Provide a calm, reassuring communication when that resident seems anxious and use redirection and distraction techniques. If, you, if the person is in taking them to the shower and it's not the right time to take a shower, the appropriate thing to do is to try it again later. Engage in an activity that's creating anxiety to begin with. Next slide. And then, you know, incorporating other sensory techniques that we know actually do help in the long-term care environment using aromatherapy, music therapy, massage and touch if appropriate, exercise, can't underestimate and overemphasize the impact of exercise and activity on reducing anxiety and agitation, and then pet therapy as well. These are all easy interventions that facilities should incorporate, uh, obviously, before they consider a medication. Next slide. Uh, I like the term or this the phrase, correct the correctable. So when I spoke earlier about looking for root cause, correct the correctable. If there's an infection, uh, Kelly mentioned a you know, situation where somebody had a urinary tract infection, then correct that, treat it. If someone has pain, treat it. If someone uh, needs to move, get them up and move them. If they're hungry, feed them. Uh, if they're diabetic and their blood sugar dropping too low is where really what precipitates a behavior, make sure it doesn't drop too low. Monitor that person closely. Can't say enough about stopping non-essential medications. This is something families should ask about all the time to look for drug interactions. You know, is there some drug toxicity, some other medication the person is taking or some drug to drug interaction that is really causing this, this change in behavior? 
always should look at medications and reduce them. Uh, reduce psychiatric symptoms, um, and sometimes that is uh, it is necessary to treat with other types of psychotropic meds to reduce the psychiatric symptoms, like treating depression. Uh, provide structure and emotional support and maintain function. Get them out of the rooms, get them out of their beds. Next slide, please. So I do want to mention, um, and just to dovetail on what Kelly was talking about, sometimes, sometimes medications are needed. And usually, you know, antipsychotics are, in my opinion, really the last resort uh, in terms of there's many medications that can be used to treat anxiety um, and even psychosis, um, and we don't have to resort to antipsychotics. We do know, as Kelly pointed out, there are black box warnings that providers and pharmacists should know about. Um, there is increased use of these medications, especially with people with dementia the risk of stroke or myocardial infarction and even death. Again, reserve these meds for symptoms that are really severe. Like, is it really causing the person extreme distress uh, and, and really imposing or preventing them from functioning? Or does it pose a safety risk? So is, it, is the behavior posing a risk to the person themselves or to those in their environment? Um, agitation and aggression that is not managed through any of those other interventions that I already spoke about, and psychosis that is debilitating. So someone believing that they see someone in their environment that's not there, or that they're talking to someone that's not there, or they call you mother when you're not their mother, that's not a problem. That's expected sometimes with people with cognitive loss. That is not a reason to medicate people. And, you know, antipsychotics really should not be used routinely. And key point here is that if they are prescribed, that they should be regularly reassessed. There should be a time frame for when that medication should be used. One example is if a resident goes to the hospital and has an infection and they develop a delirium, which is a temporary, time-limited exacerbation or increase in a level of confusion. Sometimes when they're hospitalized, they will be treated with antipsychotics. When they come back to the nursing home, the nursing home staff are required to really reassess, is this medication really needed? Is this related to this hospitalization and this acute infection? It is their job to make sure that the medication isn't continued indefinitely. And that is something that I routinely do in my practice. And I think that all families should ask their, the physicians and nurse practitioners that are taking care of their loved ones to really reassess the need for an ongoing use of an antipsychotic. And really, you know, there's no clear evidence indicating the benefit of the first generation antipsychotics in dementia. So the first generation antipsychotics, as opposed to the newer ones, are the ones that really caused or really have potential to cause some of those side effects that Kelly outlined earlier, especially tardive dyskinesia, those Parkinsonian symptoms that people get as a side effect from using these medications. Next slide. So I said, you know, if if you get a call that, um, you know, they're gonna order Zyprexa or Risperdal or Geodon or whatever, I, I would wanna make sure that, um, you know, there's a clear description of the need that the, the behavior it poses a danger to that individual or others, that they have uncontrolled agitation despite all those non-pharmacological interventions, um, that there's anxiety or you know unrelieved anxiety in the presence of agitation or hallucinations. And um, you know, there's or there there might be a temporary need to decrease the, the agitation for a diagnostic you know, a test that the person needs to have or some other type of clinical intervention. Again, even in these scenarios here, time limited and really the need for reassessment, um, you know, as to the ongoing need for the medication. Next slide. Uh, Kelly talked about the FDA warning, you know, the black box warnings. Um, we do know that antipsychotics as well as other medications increase the risk for somnolence. So I want to just outline here that 
when I mentioned earlier in my presentation that these meds were used widely in the early 80s, um, all they do for people with dementia, they don't cure, they don't cure any symptom. They don't change the brain chemistry. They merely sedate. And so it is expected that if you're going to give someone an antipsychotic or a benzodiazepine like Ativan or whatnot, you're going to cause sedation. It suppresses the central nervous system. So people who are on these medications have an increase of falls and fractures because they're somnolent, they're, they're sleepy. They also have risk for postural hypotension, which means that they stand up, their blood pressure drops, and they have an increased risk for falls, and that they can have motor and sensory instability as a result of the use of these medications. So uh, again, these people, these individuals are at risk for falls and other related types of injuries um, when initiating antipsychotics and then if um, if they're used for long-term use. So it should, again, always be reevaluated. Next slide. And so just in summary, you know, there's, we do know that there's a wide range of behavioral or psychological symptoms that people might present with, with dementia. And as dementia progresses, sometimes the potential for these symptoms to occur is going to increase and expect them. Um, it is important to really identify what is going on. What do they think is causing this increase in agitation and aggression? The symptoms might be related to either an acute or chronic illness, and it, which really should be evaluated. Many of those symptoms that I described can be managed by use of non-pharmacological me methods, and there's so many that should be tried first, and caregiver education. Uh, antipsychotics reserved, you know, when safety really is an issue, uh, always question if they're going to order one, you know, what is the symptom that they're, they're trying to ameliorate, uh, and what's the, uh, the plan for tapering the person off. It is a requirement in nursing homes to do what we call the GDR, gradual dose reduction, every six months. Um, and that's usually triggered by the pharmacist you know, looking at the drug regimen to, to suggest that to a provider. I would hope that providers do that before someone tells them that they need to do it, because it should always be a, a clue when you're looking at a, a resident's med list that anyone on any antipsychotic should be reevaluated. Um, and that they really should not be used routinely. There are so many other medications that can be used if a person has depression or anxiety that are much safer and really have a less, you know, a far less risk of, you know, side effects, uh, decreased function, and even death. Thank you. And thank you, Sue and Kelly. What an excellent presentation. So much useful information from both of you. And I just want to, as we're getting ready to queue up the questions, just um, remind our audience that we have this campaign um, with AARP Foundation, Avoiding Drugs Used as Chemical Restraints, where we are working to educate consumers about the things that we've been talking about today, about the um, proper uh, treatments for um, people about the dangers of these drugs and that there are alternatives that you should be asking for and that you have rights, um, that you should not just be prescribed these drugs without consent. They should not be used um, without looking at other alternatives, and they should also um, not be used for any prolonged period of time. So we've got a lot of information that we've been um, creating and linking to on our website, and you can get it at this particular site. And um, I actually had put a couple different uh, examples of resources in this slide, and they didn't come out. But so we'll double check that and post it on the under the description. But we've got a number of resources, um, fact sheets. We have the drug card, as Kelly had mentioned. It's a you could just slip it in your pocket, and it has questions that you should be asking staff if you have concerns about the drugs, um, as well as the list of antipsychotics that Kelly had put up earlier. 
Um, and we started a podcast earlier this year as another form of getting out um, to reach people. It's called Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. You can um, get additions on our website as well as from iTunes and on SoundCloud. So um, we have a few minutes left. We've got a couple questions that uh, maybe we can ask. And then if you all have any other comments, we can go to those as well. So one question that came in is, um, are there laws in place to make it mandatory for doctors and pharmacists to know about the black box warnings? Um, shouldn't we be holding them accountable for that? Sue, do you want to take that one? Well, I, I, I guess, Kelly, you can speak about the law, but I think from a clinical perspective in our training, uh, uh, there, it is definitely good clinical practice. Uh, and within our, you know, standards of practice to understand and to be held accountable for the medications that we prescribe. Um, so I think clinicians, nurse practitioners and physicians definitely can be hold, held accountable because they're the prescribers. I think, you know, the pharmacies, the pharmacists uh, are pretty good, at least in my practice, with pointing out when there's potential for drug to drug interactions or um, reminding uh, us if we're prescribing something um, that has an associated black box warning or when someone's been on an antipsychotic uh, longer than uh, expected. Um, so, you know, we as prescribers are definitely um, and should be held accountable. And there definitely are laws on the books requiring pharmacists have to look, it's part of the federal law that pharmacists have to evaluate side effects. And it's part of state law that and state's licenses that doctors should not be prescribing things that they don't know what the side effects are or the consequences are. Um, Lori, do you want to answer Beck? Becky's got a question. I believe, Becky, the answer to your question is that the Becky's asking if the, the Consumer Voices resources apply to um, non-facility settings, and they, they're universal to anybody that's facing the use of, of these drugs with a person with dementia. That's all the same um, consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think all of the materials that we have apply directly just across the board to anyone who may be at risk for being prescribed these drugs and can be used with anyone. Um, certainly there are some additional protections for people living in nursing homes um, that would um, kick in for people in that setting, but the, the um, resources do apply to everyone. And there is a question about whether fines can be increased to a point where the drug companies are disincentivized from promoting the drug's use. What do you think about that, Kelly? I mean, like how much over a billion or two billion do you need to go for the drug companies to be disincentivized? I mean, I think it, it's, it really is a function of um, it's it just needs we we all need to be educated and we all need to make sure that we're asking questions. I think only if we're an army of question askers will this behavior change. I don't know how much how what, what where's the magic point? Ten billion? I mean, I think that if we we have the control by asking questions and and pointing out what's right and what's wrong, and that's I think the only way to really push back on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly would agree with that and think that um, as families are demanding better options and better care, um, that we will get to the changes and certainly, you know, encouraging people to um, not just at raise the questions um, that were talked about today, but also um, work with your ombudsman programs and file complaints with your licensing agency um, as well to, again, just continue to draw awareness as we need better accountability for facilities that are not being held accountable right now. Absolutely. Can I just add one thing that I just want to emphasize something I forgot to do this that Kelly mentioned uh, in her presentation, and that was the diagnosis. Um, you know, the the way around prescribing early in the 90s was that everyone with dementia suddenly had a dementia with psychosis diagnosis on their their chart. And so regulators, you know, surveyors coming in would never question that. It was like, OK, you got dementia with psychosis. Held all is okay then. Um, I, I I would really hope that um, families and um, advocates really press a little harder than that, because just putting a label on someone requires uh, an assessment, 
And mm -hmm. so whether it's an assessment by a, a primary care provider or a psych NP or psychiatrist to really, really document that based on assessment, this person is exhibiting these symptoms that warrant a medication. In the absence of that, um, it, it, there's really no justification for the medications. I, I also think that um, someone had asked a question about, um, you know, referring to, you know, sending people out for a hospital admission or even referring to psychiatry. I guarantee you that if a nursing home resident is, is seen by a psychiatrist, there's going to be a medication that's recommended. Um, again, knowing what is the targeted symptom, what are we treating for how long and what is the expectation of that medication, you know, the, the pharmacological treatment. Um, that's what's important to know. And, and clinicians need to educate families about that. Like uh, we would be having that discussion with a clinician ourselves if it were us or someone uh, in our family. And that's what should be provided for nursing home and assisted living residents as well. Absolutely. Well, we're at the end of our time for today, um, and I would like to thank Sue and Kelly for such a great um, a great range of information that you've shared with folks today. Um, the questions that we're encouraging you to ask, even now during COVID, you should be asking those questions. If you have concerns about what you're seeing with your loved one through video chat, or if you've been able to go back in and visit, um, if you have concerns about the care that they're getting, ask the questions, ask to see what medications that they're on, um, and raise those concerns with the staff and ask for assessment and care planning processes to be done. Um, it's really important that that happen. Um, so thank you so much to both of you. Thanks for joining us today. Please fill out the evaluation for this form and you can get the slides, as I mentioned, under the session description and look forward to continuing to work with you both on this issue. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.